I am Planta on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Jack Austin joins me now. The former senator has recently published a memoir, Unlikely Insider, a West Coast advocate in Ottawa. He talks in the book of the policy he had a hand in crafting that has guided the Liberal Party going back to the 1960s when he began as an assistant to the federal cabinet minister, Arthur Lang. He served in the cabinets of Pierre Trudeau and Paul Martin, who uh, writes the books forward. And throughout the book, he also gives us a sense of the personalities he interacted with, worked with, and met in his time in public life at home and abroad. Pierre Trudeau casts a shadow throughout the book as uh, it was working as deputy minister in the Department of Energy and Mines in the 1970s that led him to serve as uh, chief of staff to Trudeau in a role that was called uh, Principal Secretary at the time. We uh, get a sense, uh, too, of the private Trudeau, as in later years, once uh, Trudeau was out of office, Austin accompanied uh, him on uh, travels throughout the world. Uh, In 1975, Austin was appointed to the Canadian Senate, where he served until 2007, when at 75, he reached mandatory retirement. The book also illustrates Austin's experiences with uh, various governments, including the United States, Mexico, and China, in fact, there's a lot of reflection on uh, at how this relationship with China has evolved. Some might say devolved over the last 50 years or more. Jack Austin is also a member of uh, the Order of Canada and the Order of British Columbia. The book is highly readable and engaging and is written with Edie Austin, his uh, daughter, who has had over 40 years of experience as an editor and writer who was uh, the former editorial page editor of the Montreal Gazette. This uh, book is published by McGill Queen's University Press. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program uh, the Honorable Jack Austin. Mr. Austin, good morning. Very good morning to talk to you, Joe. Uh, no, nice to talk to you as well. Um, do, do you still live, by the way, uh, on uh, uh, Winnipeg time? <laughs> yes, I, in fact, I do. It was my uh, formula for adjusting to the time change between Vancouver and Ottawa. So I I chose uh, the middle point, uh, yeah. which is more or less Winnipeg, uh-huh. and uh, tried to live on uh, on Winnipeg time. Yeah, it, it, I was reading that in the book, and it just made such sense for someone like yourself who was traveling uh, across the country a great deal, having to adjust, say, when you came back home to Vancouver and, and when you went to Ottawa for work, um, you know, a couple times a week. You'd need to do that, wouldn't you? Well, it's a challenge to all British Columbia politicians who have to be home and have to be in Ottawa with uh, facing a three-hour time change every week, uh, twice yeah. in every week. So uh, it, it made a lot of sense to me, at least, to try to be consistently on the same actual time. Yeah. And uh, I pretty well practiced it, and it I think successfully eliminated most of the uh, uh, costs of time change between uh, Eastern Canada and uh, and the coast. Indeed, uh, you, you write uh, uh, in the book about um, Canada's relationship with China, and and um, I'll assume that in all your years in, in public life, and we're talking more than fifty years, sixty years, you know, nearly since you first uh-huh. went to Ottawa. Um, I'll assume you've never seen it as low as it is now. No, well, it's true. Uh, Not certainly since uh, we exchanged diplomatic recognition in uh, October of 1970. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
before that, of course, China was uh, hostile to the West. It uh, had adopted a Leninist style of government, which means totally autocratic and controlling from from the center, from the party. And uh, but uh, Mao and Zhou uh, uh, Enlai uh, made a decision uh, in 1968, actually to uh, open up to the West, to use their phrase, seeing it as absolutely necessary in order to build the Chinese economy and uh, to strengthen China's uh, various capacities in the globe. So they were seeking a, um, uh, a Western country to establish a relationship with, uh, a first relationship. And uh, Canada at the same time uh, was expressing strong interest in uh, uh, a relationship with China. Pierre Trudeau, even back to 1966, mm-hmm. uh, was saying that uh, Canada should recognize China and uh, that the most important part of that uh, relationship was to bring China into the uh, general world economy. Uh, up to that time, China had been fostering uh, revolutionary behavior in East Asia, in Southeast Asia, including Indonesia, and so to uh, to end that uh, that effort uh, to establish international communism in Asia, uh, China was willing to give it up uh, in order to um, have economic relations with the West. Canada turned out to be uh, the country that facilitated made that possible. So, so as you write in the book, it's an important relationship to have. Um, where does it go from here? Because there's a, there's a lot of um, you know anti-Chinese government sentiment in this country. Uh, some of it rightfully so, um, but um, you know some people might say you know let, let, let's let's ignore them if you will, or, or um, throw throw their diplomats out of this country. Um, that's not the way to go, you think, right? No, not at all. Uh, you know, China uh, is uh, an enormous uh, presence in the global system. Its economy is the second largest economy in the world. Uh, currently, Canada sells 30 billion of various products uh, to China, buys 70 billion from China. Uh, that purchase is of uh, commodities that uh, we cannot produce or buy from anyone else at the same value, same price. China is willing to uh, discount the value of its labor in order to build uh, a global export economy. The truth of the matter is, uh, and I'm speaking real politics, uh, reality, pragmatism, Mm -hmm. is that uh, China is one of the key motors of the global economic system on which... uh, Global wealth depends. Uh, China's uh, a huge market for uh, the U.S. It's a huge market for uh, the European community. Uh, their economies would shrink dramatically without access to the Chinese uh, uh, economy. And uh, they, at the same time, Chinese exports in those countries uh, make consumer goods cheaper than they could possibly be uh, sourced domestically or sourced in the Western economies. So uh, China, to hurt China is to hurt ourselves at the same time. 
And that's a, that's a piece of pragmatism. Uh, of course, we have uh, significant uh, differences with the Chinese over moral issues, over human rights, over the treatment of individuals. And uh, that is something that, uh, over time, uh, uh, the time will change, and we need the patience to uh, prevent uh, the kind of uh, uh, discord that uh, could bring on uh, a military conflict. In other words, uh, we have to be pragmatic uh, about our relationship. Uh, we uh, we cannot uh, slit our own throats by preaching human values that uh, are not going you know, that are rejected by the Chinese culture and by the Chinese political system. Uh, at the same time, we, we have to maintain our values. We have to insist uh, on our, uh, our, our, our kind of democracy, our kind of treatment of individuals, the importance of the individual. Uh, and we have to avoid conflict. So, I mean, physical conflict. There'll be lots of economic conflict, of course, lots of political conflict. And, uh, you know, uh, Tiananmen made mm -hmm. uh, relationships between Canada and China uh, very difficult to continue. Uh, but we survived it, uh, and that gave rise to ex economic relations with China. The three M's were again a huge setback in our relationship with China, uh, and we have not yet survived that era. And it may take several years uh, and changes in leadership on both sides uh, to find a way to uh, rebuild uh, a more positive kind of relationship with China. And, and but, uh, yeah. I just want to say one more thing, sure. Joe. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a big topic. Mm -hmm. and uh, I want to say that, of course, we are in the, we are allies of the U.S. Uh, in every way, shape, and form. But we've always tried to keep an, uh, an independent position in our foreign policy where we can. Uh, America is in a big power struggle with China. Uh, and I won't go into any detail there, but Canada is, in a way, a part of that struggle, but it, in a way, we're not a superpower, and we have somewhat different interests uh, in the United States, something that may in the future lead to our being able to take again a, an, an initiative that uh, brings down the hostilities between the two countries. And, and for, for people listening to us, you, you referred to the, the three M's a moment ago. Uh, you were referring to the two Michaels and, and Meng Wanzhou. And Madam Meng, yeah. yes, exactly, exactly. There's an episode in the book um, about this delegation that um, it was during the Martin years and um, it had gone to China and included Jason Kenney, um, who at one point goes off on his own and, and grandstands in front of the cameras for, for I guess, domestic benefit here, here in Canada. Um, you write that um, public lecturing has never yielded a, a positive result uh, with China, I, I guess people will read that, Jack, and, and, and wonder if um, you, you think we should remain silent in front of China. I mean, I, I wondered as I was reading that, is, is there a lot of, say, private scolding that goes on, say, in, in, in the negotiation rooms or the meeting rooms 
when, when the two governments are, are sat together, say? Well, the reality is that uh, over the years in uh, uh, Pierre Trudeau's time and in, in um, John Chrétien's time uh, and in Paul Martin's time, private representations made in discussions with the Chinese always yielded some uh, some benefit, some release of, of people, quiet release of people who should not be held. Uh, Canada's willingness to bring them to, to Canada, those people, to Canada quietly and without uh, triumph, uh, triumph, and uh, triumphalism. Uh-huh. Uh, hey, we won. We yeah. beat them down. Uh, that uh, that was effective. Uh, when uh, Stephen Harper talked about uh, a um, uh, Uyghur leader by the name of Salil uh, and chastised the Chinese. This was shortly after he became prime minister in uh, 06, uh, 2006. Mm-hmm. Uh, Salil still held in captivity uh, in, uh, in China. He has Canadian citizenship. He just disappeared. The Chinese wouldn't talk about him. They were not going to be embarrassed by uh, uh, any demands, public demands from Canada. That's that's the way uh, the world works. Uh, you don't get uh, a Canada uh, intimidating the Chinese. You don't get a Canada getting anywhere by intimidating the Americans or anyone else. Uh, so I'm, I... I will say that, of course, we disapprove uh, of, of many things the Chinese and other people in the world do, but we live in the world with them. We can't become hermits. We can't isolate ourselves without ter- tremendous damage. I mean, the sitting, sitting back and saying we're morally superior to everybody else is not going to gain Canada uh, uh, either prestige or a living in the world. I mentioned a moment ago, Jack, that it was uh, 1963 when you, you, you first went to Ottawa uh, working for uh, Arthur Lang. Um, you were there for the most part until 2007 when you retired from the Senate. That, that's a lot of years in terms of, say, um, navigating the relationship between uh, the federal government and British Columbia. Looking at it now in 2023, how do you think that this relationship between our province and, and, and the central government, how has that evolved over the years? I mean, is it, when you look at relations today, they seem a little bit better than they were, say, in those, in, in those days in the 70s when there was a lot of Fed bashing, say, on the part of, you know, the, the, the Socrate government at the time. But I'm sure the NDP government of, of, of Dave Barrett was, was uh, guilty of the same, right? Absolutely. You know, the history of B.C. and the federal government uh, was one of a feeling of uh, isolation mm. on the part of British Columbia from uh, national policies and national benefits. And so every political party, including the provincial liberal party, fed bashed the uh, federal government, always complaining, always the sort of uh, unhappy child in the Canadian uh, political family, and with good reason. Uh, you know, Central Canada uh, made, it, made it its living by exporting uh, its uh, resources and manufacture to the U.S., to the European community. 
uh, Western Canada for a very long time was a cost center to Central Canada, and and uh, they were disdainful of uh, complaints or interests or de- demands for more spending in Western Canada in various ways. That that changed over time, but uh, uh, BC always felt itself on the far end of uh, any attention. Uh, you remember, or or I guess it's an old saying now, but a former mayor of Vancouver, uh, uh, Jerry McGear, was quoted as saying back in the beginning of the 30s that uh, uh, while Vancouver was 3,000 miles from Ottawa, um, sorry, while uh, uh, Ottawa, well, how did it go? Vancouver was 3,000 miles from Ottawa. Yeah. Ottawa was 300 uh, 30,000 miles from Vancouver. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's how it went. And basically saying that that's how far away we were in their thinking and how little they thought of us. What changed dramatically, in my opinion, and as I say in the book, was Expo 86. Right. Uh, this was a point where the province was uh, having serious economic uh, problems. Uh, the Bill Bennett government saw Expo 86 as a an excellent way to uh, uh, quick start the economy. We called it pump priming in those days. And uh, needed Ottawa to supply a great part of the uh, the money to uh, to build the right kind of Expo 86. Uh, when the federal government uh, reversed its uh, negative position, uh, when Pierre Trudeau uh, decided that, yes, Expo 86 was something in the national interest. And he decided that against the opinions of a lot of uh, cabinet ministers from Eastern Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, the uh, project showed a tremendous uh, support from Canada. And as I say in the book, uh, Bill Bennett, in, in his uh, provincial election in 1983, actually ran on how much he could get for uh, from Ottawa, how successful he was in getting resources from Ottawa. And uh, and uh, Canada Place became an iconic symbol of Vancouver, right. uh, entirely paid for by the federal government. Uh, and so uh, the uh, the negativity started to erode, and over, over time, uh, B.C. has become uh, essentially a champion of uh, national unity and a champion of uh, strong national policies, uh, socially progressive policies. I think the the current uh, federal government and the current NDP government are more in harmony than uh, we have seen uh, in terms of federal provincial governments uh, in the past. There's a, a marvelous story in the book about um, uh, W.A.C. Bennett. And uh, you were working for, for Lang at the time, and, and uh, he and Bennett didn't, particularly get along, but you got along with, with, with W.A.C. Bennett, and um, there's a great lesson there where, where um, uh, you learned that the impossible is just a bit harder, <laughs> right. which I thought was a, it's, it's a good way to look at things, I suppose, not, not just politics, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, a, it's the right philosophy of life. Uh, uh, it may be a bit harder, but it's also a lot, usually a lot more worthwhile. He, he gave you um, uh, uh, the the, uh, the QC designation. By the way, are you a KC now? I am. Yes. 
I see. It changes with the uh, with the monarch. If the monarch's female, you're a queen's council. If the monarch's male, you're a king's council. It's just automatic. That's the thing that I, that struck me as, as I, I got, got uh, through the book was was. Uh, how you were able to maintain good relations with people, and, and this included Pierre Trudeau, um, when you were um, a deputy minister in, in energy and mines, um, he went to you and asked you who you wanted your minister to be. I mean, I, I don't think he did that with very many uh, mandarins, did he? I, I, it was, uh, I think, exceptional. I don't know of any other case where uh, a prime minister is asked a deputy minister who he would like to have as his new minister. Of course, Joe Green, the, my, my first minister, uh, had a, a stroke mm-hmm. and, and had to leave uh, the cabinet for that reason. And uh, we were in the middle of a building energy crisis. And the, uh, the question, uh, we, you know, the government needed a, uh, a minister in cabinet with a lot of clout with his colleagues because we were looking at uh, building stresses between uh, the producer province, Alberta, and the consumer provinces, uh, largely Ontario and uh, to a lesser extent Quebec, but largely Ontario and Manitoba, Saskatchewan, largely Ontario. And the uh, energy crisis in 73 uh, really created national stress. you know, with the with Alberta wanting the international price, and the federal government uh, demonstrating that uh, going immediately to the international price uh, would be of enormous harm to the economic uh, uh, stability of the industries of Ontario, uh, and so we provided for a 45-day uh, holdback. Uh, so that was. Uh, that was a, an issue that uh, was one of the major uh, stresses of, of my time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I indicated to the prime minister we needed a, uh, I needed a minister who could uh, handle that issue in cabinet, and uh, Don McDonald was, in my view, the, the strong minister I needed. Indeed. Um, you write in the book that you never thought of it at the time, that, that, that in, in these various roles that you had, that you were engineering change. Um, but it seems looking back that you were prescient about a lot of things. I mean, uh, uh, Petro-Canada maybe, uh, uh, selecting Tom Berger for the pipeline inquiry, um, the Expo 86, which, which we, you've mentioned already, the Kelowna Accord. Um, there's one story in the book about... Um, Offshore exploration between in that space of uh, between Vancouver Island and Haida Gwaii and stopping that. Uh, when you when you look back, um, there's a lot to be proud of in, in in one's career. Is there something that stands out that you're proudest of? Say, uh, basically, um, it's hard to <laughs> to choose among. <clears throat> sorry, it's hard to choose uh, from among your. Uh, your values and your commitments, uh, which is the most important. Basically, uh, overall, I, I uh, fe- felt that uh, uh, in, in many ways I was proudest of raising the profile of British Columbia. Mm-hmm. 
in national policy and making British Columbia's interests count more effectively. Uh, and I was able to do that <clears throat> because, in, in part, uh, you know, I, I had background and experience in the BC economy as a, a lawyer and a businessman. But uh, additionally, uh, because uh, the case for British Columbia was solid and strong, uh, British Columbia was becoming far more important in the national context because of, in part, because of Asia and because we are the Pacific Gateway. And in so many ways, Asia was becoming more economically significant for Canada, and BC had uh, a, the role to play in transportation and in uh, the export of Canadian goods to Asia and, uh, and as an exporter of its own products. So I, I was on a, a winning bet, and the, the, you know I was on a winning horse, if you like, but I needed to ride the horse the right way to to cross the finish line. Um, the, 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 a great deal of the book is spent talking about Pierre Trudeau, working with him, because uh, um, after Energy and Mines, he became his uh, principal secretary, which is, is the, the, the role now of chief of staff, I guess we, we call it in today's parlance. Yeah, um, changed the American, yeah. the American style title, yeah. Um, um, you talk in the book about the, sort of the professor relationship um, working in his office, and then when you, you uh, went to the Senate in 1975, um, continuing to work with him, and then and then these travels that you would take later on when he was out of office. Um, in all those years, do you think um, you got to know him and then know who he was, say? I mean, he, he's always this, this guy that... that um, a lot of people are desperate to know in terms of, of what drives him or what makes him tick and, and what made him tick over the years. Um, in those quiet moments when it was just, to say, two old lawyers talking about the charter on vacation, um, did you get a sense that you you knew him as, 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 as well as perhaps most people, say, or better than most people? Well, you know, over the years, and there were many, as you point out, <clears throat> uh, I got to know him in, in many roles uh, and to see him in many roles. Uh, so I, I, I think I knew him as well as uh, someone of my background and his background, very different backgrounds, uh, could get to know one another. And, um, Pierre was uh, highly educated in uh, European philosophy. Uh, he was Jesuit trained. He was analytical. Uh, he was hardworking. <clears throat> he understood power from his studies of power. Uh, he actually had an MA in economics from Harvard, which most people didn't know. Uh, you know, I'm a Western Canadian from Alberta and from the coast. Uh, I wasn't brought up in any way in the culture that he was brought up in. I was brought up essentially in the public school systems of Alberta and British Columbia, UBC. Mm -hmm. Very different culture, very different outlook uh, on the world. But so it was something of a, a miracle that uh, uh, we had significant interests in common and, uh, and learned to work together. Uh, I learned uh, a great deal about uh, his thinking, about public policy, about national unity, 
about the relationship of uh, Canada to the world. Uh, he taught me a great deal, and uh, I was able to, uh, I believe, uh, undertake the tasks that were were uh, significant to him, and uh, undertake them successfully. And we built a, a what you know a, a, a kind of rapport. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, then uh, he was comfortable enough with me. Uh, uh, four years or three years after he retired to uh, suggest uh, that uh, we could do some international travel together. Of course, as a chief of staff, he was used to my organizing <laughs> uh, various things. Yeah. So uh, he was comfortable with that aspect, and we had some fabulous trips, as the book discloses. Yeah, the, the trips with the Colbers and, and uh, later Nancy Southam. Um, your your kids were were older than his kids. Did did he ever oh, yes. come to you for advice, say about parenting and the sort? Never, no, never. That uh, at the personal level, uh, he was quite distant mm. from me and from many many people. At the working level, the level of uh, issues of public policy or of the relationship with international people we work quite closely together but he never never uh, confided me in uh, confided in me on any personal issue even um um talking about his conversations with the queen for example he never let you in on any of that stuff did he never uh the a, a rare insight of no particular consequence perhaps but never on anything of any substance yeah um, a, a lot of people are saying that that, that the uh, the chapter on these these travels with Trudeau could be a book itself. Um, uh, they were they were fun times, weren't they? Well, they were fun times uh, in the sense of uh, tremendous opportunities for education, uh, opportunities to meet very important people that I would never have had access to uh, without Pierre Trudeau uh, being present. Um, so you know, it was uh, uh, while, while there, I was able to assist Pierre in many ways. Uh, his uh, prestige globally uh, in those years carried carried me to experiences uh, of rare quality with Mandela, yeah. even in Pakistan with the uh, dictator Zia Al Haq, uh-huh. with the uh, top Chinese leadership. Uh, it was it was quite a quite an amazing set of trips. You know the book the the book uh, I will say to you, uh, Joe, is uh, is as much a sketch as it is uh, uh, a detail. Some of it is is a sketch because uh, there just wasn't uh, room to write more. Yeah. I, I wrote another 26,000 words that had to be removed from the book because of the limitations that the publisher set on uh, uh, the length of the book. Indeed, indeed. Um, I want to ask you about the future of the Senate. And, and um, I mean, people will, will ask still. I mean, they probably asked this question back in 1975 when you first went there. Uh, whether it was still relevant. And, and, and the thing I keep wondering, Jack, as I, I was reading the book, is um, th- there's always talk of reform um, and there's, there's, there's talk of abolition. Um, 
Which of the two do you think will, will, will come first when it comes to, to the upper house in this country? Well, there'll be no abolition. Uh, the Constitution requires that uh, ten provinces uh, and the Parliament of Canada, uh, meaning the House of Commons, have to be in unanimity to amend the Constitution, and that means to amend the role of the Senate. Uh, that isn't going to happen. The same is true of the monarchy. People want to abolish the monarchy in Canada would require uh, the unanimity of ten provinces and the Parliament of Canada, including the Senate, mm-hmm. uh, to abolish the monarchy. <clears throat> so the Senate isn't going anywhere. Reform, yes. And I've written a chapter on the Senate uh, and uh, pointed out that uh, Justin Trudeau's decision to appoint only independent senators, not partisan senators, has changed the nature and character of the, the Senate. We're now watching to see how effective, how functional, how objective uh, the Senate can be as a check and balance on the executive. Uh, check, uh, you know, That was the reason for its creation. The House of Commons would always have government supporters who would be in control, Mm -hmm. and they would be directed by the cabinet, the executive, the prime minister. Uh, So the idea of the Senate when it was created, and the idea of the Senate today, is that uh, it is a forum for uh, public access, for review, and uh, from time to time, uh, a check on the uh, actions of an executive, particularly actions that uh, might threaten the position of a minority in the country or might change the relationship of Canada to uh, to the world in a way that could never be changed back. And that was the case with respect to the free trade agreement uh, election of 1988, where the Senate refused to pass uh, Brian Mulroney's uh, free trade agreement because he had never campaigned on it mm. and never explained it to the Canadian public, its necessity. And because there was a, an enormous amount of uh, opposition to it in parts of Canada, of course he controlled the House of Commons so he could pass the legislation there. But the Senate said, "No, you have to have an election and get the approval of uh, the voters uh, if you want the Senate to pass this." And that's what the election of '88, 1988, was about. And he won that election, and the Senate then passed the passed the free trade agreement as a result. So that explains the Senate is, is essentially a safeguard. Uh, uh, are the uh, independent senators uh, uh, play, playing an effective role? As I say in the book, I think it, the time is coming when we should take an objective look at how uh, Justin Trudeau's reforms are actually uh, uh, producing the kinds of results that... Uh, uh, justify the Senate. Uh, then, as now, or, uh, are you in favor of the the the, uh, the limit at, at 75, say, for, for senators sitting in that House? Yes, I am. I mean, uh, some senators uh, are uh, able to go on well beyond that. <laughs> maybe, maybe even me. Yeah, some but people I might say that, that, yeah. 75 is a good number for judges and for uh, Senators, uh, and it brings a, uh, a more youthful uh, group of people 
into uh, that responsibility, and uh, I, I would think I, that younger group are probably closer to the uh, philosophies, attitudes uh, of uh, of the midstream of, of Canadian uh, life than perhaps uh, uh, most senators beyond age 75 would be. There's a lot in the book that looks back, obviously, looking back at this this, this uh, lengthy career in public service, but, but there's also a lot of forward-looking. And I'm wondering, Jack, how um, you, you might think the, the future might be for Canada. I mean, are you generally optimistic about where we're headed, say? Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> I think if we continue on our current course, uh, uh, you know, success is, uh, as a country is uh, uh, very promising uh, when I talk about <coughs> excuse me when we talk about uh, success we are a country of 38 uh, million people in the second largest geography in the world uh, profoundly uh, uh, surrounded by uh, natural resources and talented people uh, we're really one of the lucky countries of the world. We live in a peaceful environment. Uh, we're not at war with anyone. Uh, and we're making a reasonably good living through our efforts. And we're bringing people to the country, uh, trying to build our population base and, uh, and operating uh, uh, the most diverse society in terms of the origin of its peoples in the world and doing so very successfully we're we're working on the integration of all sorts of uh, minority uh, populations because we don't have a majority mm. in the country of any of any kind today we have to resolve uh, uh historic problems with our first nations mm -hmm. uh, we have to uh, teach people who come from cultures very different from ours the value of our democratic culture, the value of our social policy systems, the value of of uh, uh, a collaborative society, we're doing that, and uh, we're fortunate too to be uh, have the richest country in the world as our first market, and uh, as uh, a country that protects our, uh, our our national sovereignty. So we're, a, I think, a very lucky country. And so far, we have uh, been quite confident, uh, no matter what government is in office, uh, nationally and, uh, and, and provincially, we've been quite confident to uh, understand uh, what we need to do to build a healthy and uh, collaborative society together. So, yes, I'm optimistic. You never know what happens outside our borders and how it will affect us, mm -hmm. but uh, I I think uh, we have uh, a good basis. The point of the book, Joe, uh, is uh, basically uh, to talk about how we govern ourselves, uh, how we, how we, how our democratic system is at the base of our uh, security and our success, and how important a, uh, an objective and honest public service is. To maintaining the stability uh, of of our uh, economic and social policy frameworks, it's about governance. It's 
it's about the books about Canada, the books about how we govern ourselves. The stories illustrate the challenges and illustrate the difficulties. Uh, and uh, I, I'm hoping that uh, for those who uh, read the book and are interested, uh, they will see an optimistic picture of Canada, but to see how we need to go about making our uh, success assured. It, it's a great read, um, and it's been uh, nice talking to you today, Jack. Continued good luck with the book, and, and thanks for your time. I appreciate very much your interest, Joe. Thanks so much. The book is called Unlikely Insider, a West Coast Advocate in Ottawa. It's published by McGill-Queens University Press. Its author, the Honorable Jack Austin, joined me on the line from Palm Springs in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planto.